0: You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All the time, but I want us to start uh, we didn't do this last week, but as a new series, I want to start just by reading God's word before we pray and then talk about it. Acts one should be on the screen. In the first book, "O Theophilus," I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that every single time that we come together in this room, we don't have to wonder if we have done enough in this last week that you would accept us and love us because your love for us and acceptance of us isn't based on who we are and what we do, but rather on who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And so I pray that that good news That the gospel of Jesus Christ would, in these moments, as we turn our attention to your word, would you, by the power of your spirit, convince us of the truth of the gospel and compel us by that good news to go and live our lives the way you say we should. We need your help. I need your help. I pray that you would use me as I speak. God, would your word be proclaimed? Would it fall in fertile soil in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives for the kingdom of God? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Uh, If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, please turn to Acts chapter one, the passage we just read. We're going to continue our series this morning through the book. Um, Just uh, another reminder, it worked for one week, reminded a few of you guys to come to the eight, um, and then you're all back here, which praise God, we're grateful for you. Um, I'm so thankful that you are here. Just want you to know, lots of room at the eight o'clock, all right? Yeah, we're gonna continue our series uh, in and through the book of Acts. We're calling it Be the Church because our hope when we come into this room and really in everything we do is not just that we would come to church or come to a Bible study or come to a community group or anything like that. We wanna be the church. We wanna be who God says we should be and do what God says we should do. And so Luke, the author of this book, who's the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, he says this in verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. We talked last week about there's one word in verse one that shows us why this book, the book of Acts, is relevant for you and me today. Anyone remember what word that was? Nobody. Began. Okay, began. Um, It's the word began because Luke says... In the first book, I covered everything from the day that Jesus was born until the moment that he ascended into heaven. So everything he did and taught. So this is his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching. Ultimately, this is his death, burial, and resurrection, after which he spends 40 days with his disciples, proving to them that he is alive and he ascends to heaven. And Luke starts Acts, this is volume two of his writing. He starts it by saying all of that was just the beginning. Which means that Jesus, even though he's ascended to heaven, and Romans 8 says he is there right now interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. Even though he's ascended to heaven, this shows us that Jesus is still still working. He's still teaching. Only now he's doing that work through us, through the church. And again, the book of Acts tells us the story of the foundation and the formation of the first church. Christian churches, and the question that we're going to ask as we work through this book is what were the things that these men and women were founded on and formed by? What was it that marked them as disciples of Jesus? Think back to our discipleship series. What marked them as they lived lives of following Jesus and being changed by him and living on mission with him together? Last week we saw in verse three, says he presented himself, that's Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. This is the thing that they were founded on and formed by. The thing is that Jesus Christ is not dead, he's alive. That's the thing that they were founded on, right? And during those 40 days that he spent with his disciples, after his resurrection, before his ascension, the disciples saw him and they touched him and they put their hands in his hands. Their hands in his hands, in the scars there. They put their hand on his side where the spear was was there. They shared meals with him, and they talked with him. And and what we're going to see this morning is a handful of those conversations, a handful of the last conversations that Jesus has with his disciples before he ascends to heaven. And there are four things here that he tells them that I want you to see, four things that he wants Uh, them to know, and by way of of that, and wants us to know, all right? And and if you're like, four things, the sermon's supposed to have three points. I can't remember four. I was like, well, what if they start with the same letter? Okay, when they do, all right? You're welcome. (laughs) Four things here, promise, power, purpose, plan. And if you are a note taker, this is our outline. Jesus tells them to wait for a promise. He tells them they're gonna receive power. He establishes for them a new purpose, and then he gives them a plan to carry it out. Let's look at the first one, this promise in verse four. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. One of the things that Luke does with his writings is oftentimes he will kind of give a general summary of events, kind of a zoomed out version and then he'll come back and zoom in and give kind of a more detailed or specific example of what he had just summarized. Here's what I mean. In verse three, we read it several times this morning already. He covers the, the 40 days between Jesus's resurrection and his ascension, and he does it in one verse, okay? Those 40 days, pretty significant in the lives of these followers of Jesus and for us. He covers it in one verse. Um, he just summarizes it. it says he proved to them that he was alive, Spoke with him about the kingdom of God. And then starting in verse four here, what we're gonna see is a handful of conversations where Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. In Luke verse four, Luke says that Jesus ordered his disciples not to leave Jerusalem. Not to leave Jerusalem, right? But to wait for this promise that was coming from the Father. And this, don't leave Jerusalem, it may not seem like much, but remember, these men weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee, which is in the north, and Jerusalem was down south and Jesus gives them this order. He says, don't leave Jerusalem because this promise is coming. Um, this word ordered here, it, it means, and it shows us rather that Jesus didn't just want to inform them, oh, by the way, the promise is coming, right? He ordered them and, and that's significant. The word has more weight to it, more authority. It means to charge or to command, It's the same word, actually, that's used in Acts chapter five, which we'll see at some point down the road. Um, In Acts five, the apostles are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are waving the banner of Jesus Christ crucified for sins and resurrected for the dead, and the religious council in Jerusalem don't like it very much, so they throw them in prison, and that night they're in prison. An angel of the Lord gets them out somehow to where everyone's all you know, frazzled, they don't know what happens. The disciples go back in the temple. They're preaching again the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religious counsel brings them in, and then it says this, Acts 5, verse 40. They're gonna threaten them, but the high priest is threatened them. He says, when they had called the apostles from the temple after being miraculously removed from prison, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The word charged in Acts 5, verse 40 is the same word in Acts 1, verse 4, uh, ordered carries weight, right? It carries authority. This is, in this situation, it was a threat, all right? It's like when I was a kid, if I would ask my dad, or rather, if he would ask me to do something that I didn't wanna do, I would do what every other kid on the planet has always done, complain about it, right? Whine about it, just say, I don't want to, okay? Which, and if you had kids, you never heard that in your house, I don't want to. Um, and my dad eventually would get tired of that and he would say to me, I ain't asking, I'm telling I'm a very literal person, if you hadn't been picked up on that yet. So what I would say is, well, actually, Dad, you did ask. You asked me. You didn't tell me. And that's why I said I didn't want to do it. And that always went really, really well for me growing up. (laughs) Um, But his point was, son, this is your only option when he was saying that to me. And And that's what this word means. Only Jesus isn't threatening his disciples. He's pointing to the reality that waiting on this promise from the Father is essential for us. It's not optional, it's essential, right? So, what is the promise of the Father? Jesus answers that in verse 5. He says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He gives this reference back to Luke 3, where John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's preaching and uh, in the the valley of the Jordan River and all these people are coming out to him and they're hearing these messages and he's baptizing them and because of his preaching and all these crowds, then people begin to wonder, maybe this guy's the Messiah. John catches wind of this and he responds this way, Luke 3, verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so, In Acts 1, Luke zooms in on this conversation where Jesus is having with his disciples where he points back not only to John the Baptist in Luke 3, but also to the Old Testament prophets of Isaiah and Joel who have been saying for hundreds of years that God is going to pour out his spirit on his people. And again, Luke zooms in on this conversation where Jesus says to them, don't go anywhere, I know you're not from Jerusalem and and I'm about to ascend into heaven, but don't go anywhere. You stay in Jerusalem because something's coming that is not optional for you in the Christian life. It is essential for you and it's this power. The Holy Spirit is gonna come not many days from now. And then in verse six, he zooms in on a different conversation. Look there. Verse six says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I need you to to feel the pain and the angst in this question right here. Um, the disciples had grown up hearing about God's faithfulness to his covenant people, Israel, okay? Despite the fact that this was not their, their present reality because the Jewish people at this time in the first century were under Roman oppression uh, and, and they were not on top, Okay. But they have heard these stories of God's faithfulness to his covenant people uh, of Israel and they heard how God um, chose a man named Abraham and how he promised him that one day all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed through you and they heard about how God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and how he had provided for them in the wilderness and how he had uh, led them into the promised land and they heard ultimately about a Messiah, about a king who would one day come and he he would establish a kingdom and he would sit on that throne forever. Okay, they had heard these stories. And then in their lifetime, Jesus shows up and he's claiming that that's who he is. I'm the king. I'm the one that's been promised. I'm the Messiah. And culturally speaking, what we have to see is that these men were nobody. Most of them fishermen, one of them a tax collector, the rest of them we're not quite sure, but they were chosen by Jesus to follow him, to come with him, to live a life, not just for him, but to be with him. And they saw him do miracles and raise the the dead and heal the sick and walk on water and they and they began to think and get their hopes up and they're going well maybe he's right maybe he is the king maybe he is the messiah and they spend a few years with him continuing to get their hopes up because there's just something different and they can tell it he speaks with authority and they're, they're getting their hopes up until the day they they're going to the jerusalem for the passover feast it happens to be palm sunday and as they're riding in with jesus all these other people, hundreds if not thousands of them, they come out from the city because they've heard too, maybe he's the one. And so they, they run out and they lay down palm branches as Jesus is riding by and his disciples and they, they shout, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They offer praise and worship to him. Son of David means that you're the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that would come from the line of David. You're the one, you're the king. And so they're worshiping him. And I want, you to, I want to ask you this, what do you think the disciples were thinking in that moment? One, it's pretty awesome, right? That we're with him, and they're praising him. But, but two, I think what they were thinking is, finally, finally the time has come. Finally, it's happening. Rome is done. We're gonna get them out of here. We're gonna get our land back. Israel's gonna be back on top. They're thinking Jesus will sit on the throne, and he will wear, wear the crown. Only the next few days don't work out like they thought they would, right? Because... By the time Friday comes, Jesus is crowned, only it's not gold, right? It's a crown of thorns and he's not sitting on a throne, he's hanging on a cross until his body is brought down, placed in a tomb and along with Jesus' body being placed in that tomb, so went their hopes. All their hopes of these promises of God and uh, their hopes went with them until they hear he's alive. Jesus is alive and, and he spends 40 days with them, like we saw in verse three, proving to them that he truly is resurrected from the dead. And it says he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which doesn't mean much to us, but what that means is Jesus spent those 40 days pointing back to all those promises, showing how they're about him and pointing them forward to the day where he would rule and reign over every square inch of creation. And so he tells them in verse five, stay in Jerusalem because not many days from now the promise of the Father's coming, the Holy Spirit is gonna be poured out on you and so they naturally respond in verse six, Lord, is now the time? Is now the time where you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And oftentimes when this, is, this verse is preached, the disciples are given a hard time for the question they ask because it shows that they are, they're just thinking about the glory days. You know, you have that friend here, anytime you try to talk to them about what's going on in your life now, they wanna point you back to what they did in high school. You know what I mean? That's kind of what's happening here. It's just the glory days. They're thinking back to when David was on the throne. They're thinking too small. They're thinking about when Solomon was on the throne. But the heart of their question is surely now is the time when you'll put an end to all this nonsense. The pain, the confusion that they were experiencing in their lives, the the fact of trying to figure out how do we bring these two things together of all that God has promised to us, all that he promised he would do in our present experience. And I spent all that time there because... I think somebody in this room can relate to that, where you're trying to figure it out, and you hear these things from these Christians who are maybe well-meaning, but it seems like their lives all put together and you're the only one, and just, life is painful. And it's confusing and you can't figure out how do you marry the, the promises of God and what's supposed to be available to you in Jesus, and yet what you're walking through, and just like these disciples, you're thinking surely now is the time because I'm not sure I can hang on any longer. The way that Jesus responds to them is the way that he would respond to us. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Which sounds a little bit like a cruel response from Jesus. Or or even just like he didn't answer the question. You're like, it's not helpful, Jesus. We asked, Is now the time? And you didn't really answer us. That's actually not what's happening. Remember earlier I said that in verse three, Luke gives this summary statement about these 40 days, and then he zooms in on these conversations. And in the summary statement, it says that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And this is him zooming in on a conversation where he was correcting some misunderstandings that they had about the kingdom of God. Again, in verse seven, they say, Lord, is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And again, it's not a bad question for them to ask, but what it does show us is that their vision for what Christ had come to accomplish was too small. What they had in mind when they thought about ultimately what Jesus, his, his vision for the new heavens and the new earth would be, their, their vision was too small. They wanted the kingdom to be restored to Israel, which meant I want my land back, I want Rome out of here, and we wanna have a king. We wanna be back on top. When are we gonna be something again, Jesus, is what they're asking. And we'll see this in a minute, but what, what Jesus is gonna say is, guys, Israel isn't where the kingdom ends. It's just the beginning. This is only the beginning. It's just where it starts. And then he says this in verse seven. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus isn't saying this to withhold information from his disciples. He's not trying to keep anything from them or from us. He's actually trying to to give us something. When he says it's not for you to know, he's actually trying to give us something. Here's what I mean. If, If you knew the date and the time that this was gonna happen, it would not be good for you, or me, if we knew the date or time. Uh, and here's why, it's like this. When I was in college, um, I preferred to do all my studying on campus, rather than off campus, because inevitably, if I tried to study at home, uh, I would end up doing anything else but study, okay? Because my roommates would, I'm like a puppy, my, my roommates would walk by with a ball, and I'm like, oh, where are we going? You know, I'm like trying to do this. The weather's nice outside, we're gonna throw a frisbee, do you wanna come? Uh, yes, you know, that's kinda what happened. Um, so I would do all my studying on campus, uh, in Athens, go dogs, So to throw it out there, you know, you have to every once in a while. Um, and I had my favorite spots that I would like to go study. My favorite places, favorite buildings, favorite chairs, favorite windows, favorite view. That's where I would go spend my time and study. Uh, and it was awesome. I actually really enjoyed it. Spent a lot of time studying in college, you know, as I walked through the exciting analysis of risk management insurance, and then I ended up being a pastor and never use it, but. Um that's neither here nor there, okay? Here's the point. The, the week of finals, I could never study in my favorite spots because somebody else was there, all right? And I was always so frustrated by that. And I go, "Who do you think you are?" All right? I've been here hours this semester. I put in the windshield time and then now you think the week of finals you get to roll in here and just sit wherever you want, right? That's what's going on in my heart. I've since repented, okay? It's fine. Um Here's the, here's the point, why? Why were those, those spots taken, the week of finals? Because they knew the time and the date. And, and Jesus, is this is what he's saying, it's, it's not for us to know, because if we knew the time and date, we wouldn't really care about it all that much until it got close, okay? Um, and again, he's not trying to take from us. He's trying to set us free, because there's a negative side to that, which we just talked about. There's also a positive side to this, because if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I mean, you knew the time of the day, 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, it's happening. If you knew that, you probably wouldn't go out to lunch with your family after church. If you knew it, you probably wouldn't take your kids to the park later or go meet that friend for a cup of coffee. You probably wouldn't take a nap this afternoon if you knew when Jesus was coming back, right? Because hopefully if you knew that tomorrow was the day that the sky was gonna crack open, that the Lord Jesus would return and that we would all stand before God and give an account for our lives, hopefully you'd be calling everybody you know, pleading with them to put their faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ because it's coming. And this is the only way of escape. Hopefully you'd be running door to door. Now I'm not saying that's bad to call and plead with family members or to go door to door. And quite honestly, we'll talk about this in a minute. Some of us need to get in the game a little bit more. Some of us are, are sitting on the sidelines too much. But Jesus says to us, it's not for you to know the time because he wants to set us free to, to enjoy the little moments in life as the good gifts from God that they are. Right? We, we wouldn't, things like going to lunch with your family after church. Taking your kids to the park or going for a walk. Like things that we wouldn't do if we knew Jesus was coming back. That's what he's saying. He wants to set us free to actually live lives where we're present and worshipful even in the small moments of our lives, right? Jesus is saying it's not for you to know the time, but what he does want us to know, he says that the time is fixed by the Father, not for you to know when it's gonna happen, but what you do need to know is that it's fixed, it's happening, meaning the coming of the kingdom, the ultimate return of Christ is not a probability uh, or, or a potential, it's a reality. It will happen, it's fixed by the Father's authority. He knows the day and time, again, Jesus at the right hand of God the Father where he sits, interceding for us until God the Father says, now, and he's coming. And so while there, there is a sense of urgency in this, um, there, there's also this, this marrying of that God wants to set us free, that we could both live uh, worshipful in these small and little moments of life, but at the same time knowing that it's happening, it's coming. Jesus will return. Look at verse six. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the second thing Jesus tells them. One, you wait for the promise. Two, you will receive power. Before we talk about how the Spirit empowers us, we need to see what Luke is trying to highlight for us as he zooms in on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. So he orders them to wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere because this is not an option. It's essential. The promise of the Father's coming. The Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power. Right? What this shows us is that the Lord knows that if if we're gonna make it in the Christian life, meaning if we're gonna find the strength to overcome the painful, confusing moments of this life where we go, I'm not sure how much longer I can hang on, the Lord knows if we are gonna make it, we need something more than our own discipline and our own ability. That's what this shows us. Jesus says you wait for the promise because you need power that does not come from you. You need power that cannot come from you. And I just feel compelled to ask, how many of us live a version of a Christian life where if we're honest, we don't need God's power to be successful? And if that's the case, Jesus says it's not optional. You wait here because without God's power, you'll never make it. And if we somehow define success in the Christian life in a way that we can accomplish it without the power that God gives, then maybe our definition of success in the Christian life is a little bit different than Jesus is. Right, and, and, and Jesus says the Spirit's coming and he's gonna give you power and don't go anywhere because this power is essential for you. We all need it. Power of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes in churches like ours, when you talk about uh, the Holy Spirit, some people start to get a little nervous. Some people do. There's a handful of us in the room who would prefer a, a Trinity that is made up of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Um, the Spirit just kind of weirds us out a little bit. We're not sure what to do with it. And the, and the reality is, there's a, there are people who make mistakes on both sides of this spectrum. You can underemphasize the work of the Spirit in your life, and you end up living a Christian life that is devoid of the power of God, which means that it's not what the Scriptures say we should be. Or you overemphasize the Spirit above the Father and the Son, and we forget that Jesus says in John 15, verse 26, that the the Father and I, the Father and Jesus, are sending the Spirit, and he will bear witness about me. Jesus says the whole reason why we're sending the Spirit to you is because the Spirit of God is the the source of power that illuminates the work and person of Christ all the more. So we can make uh, mistakes on both sides of this spectrum, and if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that, for the next couple weeks, as we work through this, we're gonna be talking quite a bit about the work of the Spirit. And, and that being said, I don't feel like I have to say everything about how the Spirit empowers us and how the Spirit moves and works in us. I do wanna to point to one thing, Ephesians chapter three, of how the Spirit of God empowers us. I think it's important that we see this. It should be on the screen. Ephesians three, verse 14 says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the apostle Paul is on his knees. He's praying for the church at Ephesus. And he says, I'm asking that God would by the power of his Holy Spirit strengthen you. Here's why, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would give you power so that you might be able to wrap your minds around the reality of how infinitely loved by God that you are. Verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, which means this, that the love that God has for you and for me isn't based on who we are or what we've done, but Christ is alive in our hearts through faith, which means God's love for us is based on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. And Paul's praying that we would be convinced of that, that that we would somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, believe that the gospel is true, and not just true out there for you, but true in here for me. That you actually believe the gospel counts for you that despite the fact that it's the farthest thing from what you deserve when god the father looks at you he doesn't see your sin your guilt and your shame he sees the righteousness of christ the perfection of jesus and he always welcomes you always invites you in and will never leave you and never forsake you that's what he's saying i'm praying and that's the spirit's work I wanna be empowered by the Spirit, not to go speak in tongues and do all these other things, which again, we'll talk about in the next few weeks, but empowered by the Spirit to actually believe that God could love me, that God could use me. And he prays that the Spirit would convince them of that truth because, and I've said this for years, the Christian life is one of being convinced and then being compelled. As we are convinced that God's love for us actually counts for us, that is what compels us to go and live the life that Jesus would have us to live. So Jesus says, you wait for the promise, you will receive power, and then he gives them their new purpose. Look at verse seven. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses. Witnesses. What do witnesses do? They testify. Right, so we gotta catch this. The post-resurrected, pre-ascended Jesus commissions his disciples by saying this, you have a new purpose and you will be my witnesses. From this point, from from when I ascend, you will be my witnesses and that will be your purpose, the, the purpose of the church until I return. From Jesus' ascension, Until his return, this is our purpose, to be witnesses of Christ until he comes back. And the way we testify to who Jesus is and what he's done is by living spirit-empowered, transformed lives because his perfect life has satisfied the law of God in a way that ours never could because his substitutionary death has paid the penalty for our sin in full, and because his bodily resurrection has forever secured for us victory over sin and death. And Jesus says, our purpose in this world is to be living testimonies of what we have seen, that we've been forgiven of our sin, that we've been reconciled to God, and we've been commissioned to live as witnesses, to share the good news of the gospel not only with our lives, but with our lips which means if we're gonna be witnesses that at some point, if you truly are a Christian, I'm not saying you never struggle with doubt, I'm saying if you believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for your sin and he was resurrected from the dead and you're reconciled to God, then at some point in your conversations, where you should get with your lips is, this is what he's done for me. Let me testify to my experience, how how I have been set free from sin that I used to be enslaved to. And how I used to walk in guilt and insecurity and shame over the silliest things. And I used to be controlled by what other people think about me. But as I've been pressing in and asking the spirit of God to convince my heart that he actually loves me. It's been setting me free from being governed by what other people think about me. So now I can actually love them. That's the kind of conversations we should be having. This is what it means to be a witness as we point to who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and how that's impacted our lives. This is what he's done for me. And as I've been reading through the book of Acts, I've gained a bunch of confidence as a a pastor and a preacher. And that's not because I'm like, oh, I know exactly how to preach this or because of any gifting. I've, I've gained confidence because as I've been reading through this book, what's become clear to me, these brothers and sisters, they only have one message. There's only one sermon Right? There is only one sermon. This is the message. Son of God has come as a savior for the world to rescue and redeem us from sin and death. And so the banner that you, if you're a believer in Jesus, the banner that we as his church should wave every single day, again, from the time he ascended until the time he returns, that we lift high and seek to raise in our own lives and in our lives corporately is that Jesus Christ has been crucified for sins and he has been resurrected from the dead. There's just one message One truth, one hope, one gospel. God loves you, despite the fact that that's not what you deserve from him and there's nothing you could ever do to earn that love or to lose it. It's been poured out onto you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if that message this morning is hitting you in a different way than maybe it ever has before, I encourage you to lean into that, pay attention to it, because it's not me. This is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God illuminating to you the person and work of Jesus Christ going, well, you know what? It's not just true. It's true for me. God loves me. He actually sees me. He knows me. And despite the fact that I am filthy rags before him, he invites me to come to him and he will never leave me or forsake me. If that's resonate in your heart a little bit, I encourage you to lean into that. Pay attention to it. And you don't have to, if you wanna receive it, that's what he's offering to you. If you wanna receive it, you don't have to say a prayer, you don't have to come talk to me, you don't have to give any money. Romans 10 verse nine says this, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? And that doesn't mean like if you can say the words, Jesus is Lord, then you're saved. The the, the reality, the idea is if you actually believe it and you testify to it, this is what saves us, faith in Christ alone. Again, Jesus says that our new purpose, corporately and individually, is to live as his witnesses and that what motivates us to live as his witnesses is not guilt. It's not guilt, right? This is why Paul prays what he does in Ephesians 3, that, that what motivates us to live lives of testifying to who Jesus is and what he's done is that we actually believe it, convinced and compelled. We're not motivated by guilt, but there is a sense of urgency to this. There is. And like I said, many of us, we're just sitting back. We're living as if it doesn't matter and we'll get there eventually, but here's the thing. Jesus says, you don't know the time that's fixed by the authority of the Father. It is coming and there is a sense of urgency to this. There should be for all of us and I think we get this wrong in in one way. So when we talked in our discipleship series about discipleship starts with an invitation from Jesus. And we reference Matthew four, when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is where we get this wrong. I want you to picture in your mind, this is an active exercise, picture in your mind someone fishing, okay? And you're like, this is silly. Just think about someone fishing. It's not that big of a deal. I'm gonna make a point here in a second, all right? You picture them fishing, and I'm gonna ask you this. What's the weather like in that scenario? Probably pretty nice, right? 70 and sunny, maybe 75 if you like it hotter. Now, if, you, if I asked you to picture someone fishing and you thought about just a hurricane, then we need to talk later, okay? Because that's weird. <laughs> now, most of the time for us, we're gonna picture 70 and sunny, and the water's calm, right? And you got a nice comfy chair, either on a boat or on the beach, and you got a cooler there full of ice cold beverages and snacks, right? Where we get this wrong is because when we hear Jesus say, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, give you this new identity, convinced and compelled, we think about the things that the the hobby that some people do in their free time to unwind from the stress of their lives. That's what we think about. And yet, that's not the picture that these guys would have had. Right? We're thinking about no cost. No risk to your livelihood. If you don't wanna go, then don't go. But if the weather's, just wait for a better day. Like, that's what we think about. These guys would have thought about their vocation on the Sea of Galilee every day, no matter what the weather was, because their livelihoods depended on it, right? And when a storm popped up, you couldn't afford to go home because you needed it. You had to work. And again, we're not motivated by guilt, but there is a sense of urgency. There should be to us. And that's what this is showing us because Jesus is not commissioning us, church, into a hobby that some people do to unwind from the stress of their lives. He's calling us to a new purpose, a new vocation, unleashing us by the power of the Holy Spirit, convincing us that it's true because there's a day coming where the sky will crack open, and Jesus will return, and we all will stand accountable before God for our own lives, and the only answer that works, Jesus Christ has been crucified for my sins. And he has been resurrected from the dead and I place my faith in him. There's a sense of urgency to this. We wait for the promise, we receive the power. He establishes this new purpose and he gives them a plan to carry it out. Verse seven, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria unto the end of the earth. This verse kind of sets the table of contents, verse eight for the whole book of Acts because chapter one to seven is in Jerusalem. Chapters eight to 12 is Judea and Samaria and then starting in chapter 13 it transitions and we're outside of Judea and Samaria and then we, the book ends in Rome after Paul's missionary journeys which is not necessarily the ends of the earth but it was at that time the center point of world power and, influence. and this is why I said last week, the book ends with a comma and not a period because from Rome, church, we're the ends of the earth. We're here now because the spirit kept empowering people because the spirit was convincing people that God actually loves for them, that the gospel actually counts for them because they were compelled by that good news to share that with the people around them, to be witnesses with their lives and their lips, right? That should encourage us The fact that we're in this room is evidence for us that the Spirit's still moving and working, that Jesus is still uh, alive. And the plan Jesus gives his disciples in Acts 1 is the same thing for us today. He says, you go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you go, well, are we supposed to go to Jerusalem? No. Remember, the Bible isn't written to us, it is written for us. So what was Jerusalem to these men? When he says, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was where they were. Okay, So when Jesus commissions us, he's saying it starts where you are. Acts 17 would go on to say that God has determined the specific boundaries of our dwelling place, which means this, that that you live where you live because God's planted you there. You live on that street and that apartment and that house and your jobs and you work next to the person you work next to and you sit in class next to the person you sit in class next to and you uh, are, are in the same family with the people like because God has planted you there for this new purpose, to enjoy him because he's restored you into your relationship with him and to tell people, to herald the good news of the gospel, can you believe what he's done for me, that God would offer his love to me? He says it starts in Jerusalem and then it moves to Judea. And Samaria, which was a little bit further away, but he says Judea and Samaria because Judea was people who were like them, Samaria was people who was unlike them. Which means that that God wants us to testify and be a witness to people who are different than us, who have different thoughts, different opinions, different uh, political beliefs than you do in an election year. Our purpose is this, to be these witnesses. And then... He says in verse eight, look there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and, he says, to the end of the earth. Notice it doesn't say you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It says and, which means for us that gospel proclamation for global missions or in the 1040 window If you know what that is, this is this latitude, longitude uh, space on the planet that where the most concentration of unreached peoples are, people who have no access to the gospel. What he's saying here is that gospel mission in those areas is not the big leagues and then what you do at home with your kids is single A ball. He says it starts at home and it goes to the ends of the earth, which means you be faithful where you are. And yet, church, it means that we have to understand that what Jesus is doing and what we are a part of is so much bigger than Savannah, Georgia. It's so much bigger. Everything we do as a church should fall under this umbrella. How can we bear witness to Christ in this city and to the ends of the earth? This is a question that we have to answer. All of us need to answer this question. How can I bear witness to Christ with my life and my lips? Who, God, have you called me to go and be a witness to? Where have you called me to go? And remember, Jesus says in verse seven, it's not for us to know when he will be returned, but he wants us to be certain he's coming back. And so there's this opportunity for us to to live with a sense of urgency, but also to Be present and enjoy the the little moments of life as the gifts from God that they are. And until then, he gives us power through his spirit to convince us and compel us that we're loved by God despite the fact that it's the farthest thing from what we deserve. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Lord, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use those words to stir in our hearts. I pray even now that you would, you would begin to press on someone's heart, that they would say, hey, God, I wanna go. Who, Lord, do you wanna send me to? Where, Lord, do you want me to go and testify to the goodness and the grace that I've received in Jesus Christ? Help us, God, to be the church. Help us, God, to not live versions of the Christian life that don't require your power and your spirit to be successful. We need your help. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you are helping us with communion this morning, you can go ahead and move to the back and just hang out back there. I'll invite you down here in a second. We're gonna have an opportunity this morning, church, to respond to the good news of the gospel uh, in a unique way. It's a way that Jesus said, um, as often as we do this, that we would do it in remembrance of him. All right, so I know in this room, there are people from all different backgrounds, all different types of churches. And what's going on here is the night before Jesus gave his life for you and me, he's in a room with his closest followers and they were about to, to participate in the, the Passover meal, which is something they did all the time. Because the center point of the central salvation story for the people of God up to that point was the exodus, It was God has rescued and redeemed us out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus stands up and takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. And he holds the cup up. And he says, this is my blood shed for you. And what he's doing there is he's saying the center point, the center salvation story for the people of God will no longer be you've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but that through my broken body and my shed blood on your behalf, you have been rescued from sin and death. And what's interesting is in Luke 24, we've been talking about this post-resurrected, pre-ascended encounters that Jesus has with his disciples. The one that Luke highlights the most is called the the road to Emmaus. Maybe you're familiar with this. You have these two guys who had their hopes up and yet they saw Jesus's body going to the ground. And so they're going home. And they're walking back to Emmaus and the Bible says that this, this man shows up with them and it's Jesus and they don't recognize him. And he's walking with them miles. The whole trip's seven miles. So he walked with them miles. And he's explaining to them the Bible says, the law and the prophets and Moses and how all the old testament was ultimately pointing to him. And the Bible says this. It got late, and so they got where they were going, and Jesus was just traveling on and, and they invite him in for a meal. So he went to stay with them. Verse thirty says this. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and listen to this, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Which means for us, church, that there's something about this meal And something about the connecting point between what happens here in the story and what Jesus says at the Last Supper where he says, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. Because there's something about not just hearing the gospel or thinking about the gospel, but there's something about this communion meal where we hold the crack in our hands and it gets it out of our heads and it puts it here. And we hold the, the cup in our hands and it gets it out of our heads and it's in our hands and we say, Jesus died for me. That's the confession that we're gonna make when the plate passes and you grab it. When you you take the meal, when you drink the cup, you're saying, I believe it. Now, it may be a Mark 9 sort of situation. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, and that's okay. Again, we talked about this last week. Jesus isn't afraid of our doubts, right? So you guys can head on down and begin passing it out. And as, as it comes by, I want you to take it on your own. I want you just to consider the reality of the fact that the eternal son of God gave his life for you so that you can be with him forever. When you're ready, you can take it. And then when you get done, we're gonna stand and respond together in singing.